0: I guess, yeah. Go <laughs> Good morning, Hayden Bible Church. I'm glad he didn't dismiss you. There's still time left. We better pray. Father, what a, a sincere blessing it is that you've brought the saints together today. Lord, all to your glory, we, we pray that it blesses you and. It makes you smile that we're singing the phrases of your son, Lord, our Savior. We love him. Lord, we thank you that you've redeemed us from the pit. You've brought us to new life. You've given us a promise of eternal life. Lord, we stand fast in that today. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed yourself to us through your word and through your Holy Spirit that brings it to life, Lord, as applies this word to our life. Uh, Thank you for the revelation of Jesus, the one that we want to look at today in his ascended place in glory. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would help us, Spirit, teach us. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We're going to open our Bibles this morning to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be beginning in verse 18. And the Apostle Paul this morning is praying for for the saints in Ephesus just after explaining to them the wonderful rescue and the mighty hand and outstretched arm of our awesome God through the cross of Jesus Christ. Listen as I read to you, it says, he says, I pray, Christians, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I wonder this morning as as we consider God's word, in your heart, where is the Lord Jesus? In the day-to-day reality of your life, where the rubber meets the road, what is his true authority? How potent is his power? How far-reaching is his dominion? and how secure is his kingdom is your heartbeat as it relates to these questions is it based on reality or is it based on thinking that you've come up with in your own mind have you been trained even though you would you'd hate to admit it to think that your lord effectively has no day-to-day purpose other than being, maybe being a fascinating subject at a bible study Is he high and lifted up or marginalized and powerless in your thinking? We just celebrated his resurrection, so at least in theory we know he's alive. But what's he doing now? And what does it mean for my life? You know, during his passion on his way to the cross, our Lord Jesus allowed himself to be taken before the Sanhedrin of Israel. These guys are the rulers of Judaism, in a sense. Maybe 70 guys sat on a council. And by this time, they were so fed up with Jesus that they really just wanted to kill him. So their best plan was to have Jesus incriminate himself so that they could declare a judgment in response to him breaking the law... So, they could sentence him to condemnation and kill him. They wanted him dead, but they wanted to do it with a clean conscience. So, he's brought into the chamber in front of the council, and they ask him, If you're the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us. Make yourself equal with God. Blaspheme God so we can kill you like the law says and finally get you out of our faces. They'd already made up their minds that he wasn't the Messiah, and in their hearts, he was an administrative detail that needed to be dealt with, an annoyance. If you're the Messiah, tell us, they said. But he said to them, verse 22, or Luke 22, they said to him, them, he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe, if I, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. Their hearts were stone-cold hard, and they were done talking. Here they were, the stewards of Israel the judges appointed over the administration of Judaism seated in their place of authority in front of the one who would soon be seated on the very throne of authority above all other thrones. In verse 69 of Luke 22, the judge himself, God in human flesh, gives his glorious response to their mocking questions. He says, from now on, The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. From now on, Jesus was headed to the cross. And as we know, the Father would raise him because of the sufficiency of his work and the completeness of our justification. He was the once-for-all sacrifice, bringing an end to all the Mosaic Covenant sacrifices and like the Old Testament Melchizedek he had no beginning he had no end he was the eternal priest king and even greater than Melchizedek he was the son of God Scripture says he emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant and and being made in the likeness of men he he being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death even death on a cross. The real high priest that all the others pointed to, the real king, the son of Adam, the prophesied son of man, the only begotten and eternal son of God. The God-man was on his way to dominion and glory and a kingdom. So again, in response to the council asking if he was claiming to be Messiah, he says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. In another passage from Matthew, prior to the time with the Sanhedrin, Jesus is brought before the high priest. He was saying to Jesus, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God, the blessed one? And just so you know, he he wasn't asking. The high priest was really Commanding Jesus to incriminate himself. And Jesus said to him, I am. You've said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, literally from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, you will see. Why would what he said be a threat? to the Jewish officials. What do these things say about his true authority and the potency of his power and the extent of his dominion and the security of his kingdom? This morning, I want you to hear that when Jesus is speaking to the Sanhedrin and to the high priest in these gospel passages and and about his sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And when Paul is speaking to the Ephesians in our passage... This morning about Christ's rule and authority and power and dominion. He isn't speaking of some event prophesied thousands of years beyond the setting or even something in our future. He isn't speaking here of his ultimate return at the end of all things in a future kingdom that will be established at that time. In actuality, he's speaking of his ascension to his throne of glory. Shortly after his cross and resurrection that we just celebrated, it turns out that he's speaking of the ascension of the king. His very rule and reign at the throne of the power on high right now. The high priest and the Sanhedrin and everyone else of that generation in Jerusalem experienced his dominion and the potency of his power in a.d. 70 when the son of god brought judgment on the covenant-breaking nation and eliminated the temple and the whole system which had become the center of their corruption and no longer necessary because christ had inaugurated a new covenant that we just celebrated And of course, at Pentecost, he demonstrated his dominion over the nations when he sent his spirit and empowered the apostles to speak in in the nation's own tongues so that they could hear and understand the sweetness of the good news of the kingdom and repent and believe the gospel and be brought to life. Before we begin our Ephesians passage, let's turn to Daniel 7. Hopefully you were able to spend a little bit of time on that passage this week. And while you're turning there, I want to remind you of three of the Lord's post-resurrection instances. First of all, in Matthew 28:18, after the cross and before his ascension, Jesus came up and spoke to His disciples, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." And then in Luke 24, 51, while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. In Acts 1, we remember Jesus' ascension when he was lifted up while they were looking on. And a cloud received him out of their sight. Jesus was given all authority and ascended from earth where a cloud received him out of his disciples' sight. And here in Daniel 7, we see things from heaven's perspective. Listen to Daniel's prophecy, looking forward to that ascension that's in our past. Uh, After his resurrection, he writes and says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, With the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. In this prophecy, one like a Son of Man was coming with the clouds of heaven up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. A man ascended into heaven, and he was presented before God. A mighty victor a rescuer and a deliverer who had even overcome the most feared enemy of all, death itself. This man, the God-man, was stepping into his glory with confidence he was taking his rightful place on the throne. You might remember additional imagery from his ascension from another perspective from Psalm 24. The prophecy of Christ's ascension continues. He writes in verse 14, he says, And to him, this one presented before the Ancient of days, And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed ever. You should have some confidence building in your heart right now. Again, from yet another perspective, Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion saying, rule, exercise your dominion in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. That's us, by the way. The very ones who have come to the mountain that can't be touched, to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, Hebrews 12 says. Those of us born of the Spirit, regenerated, we've become obedient from our hearts, zealous for his overcoming and victorious kingdom, volunteering freely in this day of his power. Oh, hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem and crown him Lord of all. Crown him with many crowns, the lamb upon his throne. He reigns through all the universe. His glory covers all the earth. His kingdom will not pass away and his sovereignty will never be abated. You would think his people, the citizens of his dominion, would have a good news of a kingdom to proclaim. You would think that the citizens of his kingdom would put on his provided armor and gird up their loins and wield the sword of his word as he subdues nations by the overwhelming power of his gospel. Isaiah 11 says that the branch from the stem of Jesse, the Messiah, will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with his word, and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. The word of Christ, the the king, is powerful. It's potent and authoritative. Earthly kings use earthly measures to overcome their enemies. The king of glory, he speaks his word. And his will comes to pass. His dominion is potent. You and I are living testimonies of that truth. And so are the Ephesians. Let's turn there now. Ephesians 1 verse 18. The Apostle Paul writes and says to the Christians in Ephesus. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. And what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The Ephesians Christians were were well familiar with worship systems of false gods. In fact, the the fake goddess Diana was worshipped in hopes that she would make the city kind of a successful city. Her worshippers were to nurture her so she would bless them, theoretically. Occultic practices defined the culture And spiritual forces of darkness Seemed to hold sway over the hearts of society Diana's temple in fact was revered and, And considered one of the seven wonders Of the ancient world The slavery and deception of these occultic lies Held God's people in bondage The elect in Ephesus needed a deliverer To call them from this bondage and rescue them Just a few verses after our passage, Paul acknowledges that the Ephesian Christians were once enemies of God, living their lives, so to speak, in an enemy kingdom. In fact, chapter 2, verse 1, he writes, "...you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience." Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Yet through his victorious cross, he even overcame the works of the devil and rescued them from their bonds of slavery and brought them into his own overcoming kingdom." By the word of his power, the ascended king overcame even their dead hearts of enmity and expanded his kingdom, his dominion over their hearts and lives right where they lived, right in their neighborhoods. Just like he's done with us. He's expanded his kingdom into our neighborhoods. His kingdom is a kingdom with assured and everlasting hope. There's hope associated with this calling that's brought us to life. There's a future we've been given under the authority of this mighty deliverer. And here in verse 18 of Ephesians 1, Paul is praying that the very lives of the Ephesians, and by extension our lives as Christians too, are informed by this hope, this future of glory we have in his kingdom. In fact, in the fashion of earthly kings who expand their kingdoms by forth and they enjoy the spoils Of their victory. It should humble our hearts here in verse 18. As as Paul prays that the saints know. What are the riches of the glory. Of his inheritance in the saints. You know what should cause us to glory in God. To know the heart of our God. Who treasures us as his plunder. You and I who were once his dead enemies. Are now His inheritance. You know that those of us Christians who sometimes battle with thinking processes about our own worthlessness and we need to pause for a moment and and marvel at a truth like this. You're the king's spoil. You're his inheritance, even his bride. Your king looks forward to enjoying having you forever. This kind of reminds me of 1 Samuel 30. I remember David and and the Amalekites had raided the Negev and Ziklag and they burned it down. And they kidnapped all David and his men's women and kids. And when David and his mighty men came back to town, the place was a trash heap of ashes. It was deserted. And everyone was mad at him because their families were now Amalekite slaves and they weren't even sure if they were still alive. But David, he strengthened himself in the power of the Lord his God and he slaughtered the enemy kidnappers and he rescued his and everyone else's wife and kids. And by the grace of his sovereign God, he brought every person and thing home as his spoil, his inheritance in a sense. You and I, we're the spoil of a true and greater David, the real owner of the throne. We're Christ's inheritance, owned by him. Praise him. Let's look back at verses 19 and 20. Paul's prayer for the enlightenment of our hearts continues so that we also know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, the king on his throne that we serve isn't some helpless weakling, someone who sits on the throne but can't do what he says he can do. Maybe, for instance, someone who sends us on a great commission but doesn't really have the power to rescue his people. In the Ephesian culture, the minds of the community were convinced that occultic and demonic, supernatural, spiritual forces were so strong that the only thing you could do was bow down and worship them. There was no way to overcome them. So Paul prays that God would enlighten them and us To fully understand the surpassing or the immeasurable greatness of his power and to fully understand the strength of his might toward us who believe. The people of this ascended king have no need to bow down in submission to earthly or spiritual forces of darkness. Externally, there is no other dominion or no other rule or dictator or president or country above the authority of our great God, Jesus Christ, who reigns today from his throne. And through the proclamation of his word, he subdues his enemies. And internally, there's no indwelling sin that has dominion over the lives of his rescued people In fact, in us, through the indwelling presence of our great God, He has placed the power to overcome the dominating influences of sin in our life. We're no longer slaves of sin. He's rescued us. He's delivered us. He's made us slaves of righteousness. And that's why you struggle against sin now. And through the ministry of his word, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he progressively sanctifies us into the image of Christ, to his glory and for the goodness of his kingdom. You know, the Lord wants us to see in these final six verses of Ephesians 1, our life's reality under the new covenant in Christ's blood. As we gaze at the glory of our ascended and enthroned and exalted king, You know, again, we want to see this morning that the Apostle Paul is praying that the eyes of our Christian hearts might be enlightened so that we would know the hope of his calling and the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then finally, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? As we've seen, the Lord tells us that this power is in accordance with the strength of God's might. It's God's might. In fact, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, this this is the, the same strength of might that Paul says which God brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The lowly... And loving lamb, receiving the, the just penalty of our sin, killed according to the law of God which, that holds us guilty. The lamb who drank every drop of God's wrath, saving all his people from hell, who died and was buried. The lowly lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His, his kind sacrifice is now available to anyone from anywhere who cries out to him for salvation. By the power of God, by the strength of God's might, this Lamb, Jesus Christ, was, He was taken from the lowest place of death, mocked by His own people, as we've already seen, and despised by the rest of us. His people thought He was actually being judged by God as He hung on a cross. Yet by the strength of God's might, He was raised to life, and He was seated on the throne of God's right hand. In heavenly places. Again from verse 21. He sits. Far above all rule. In and authority. In and power. And dominion. And, and every name that is named. Not only in this age. But also in the age to come. He's enthroned. Lofty. And Exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Seraphim flying around him singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he rules his kingdom today and forever. His kingdom will have no end. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul continues. He says, God put all things in subjection under his feet. And gave him his head over all things to the church. This is past tense language. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here in verse 22 when Paul says God put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. He's actually carrying forth the the fulfillment of Psalm 8. And a psalm acknowledging, by the way, that man, the first Adam, was assigned dominion. And rule, to rule over the work of God's hands on the planet. And finally now in Christ, the second Adam, this dominion has been accomplished. All things are in subjection under Christ's feet. Under the feet of our victorious king. Paul also says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty five that he will indeed reign until all his enemies are overcome. Every tongue will eventually confess, and every knee will eventually bow to his lordship. Even death itself will bow, and then he'll finally hand the kingdom of God to, over to, the, to God, his Father. The Scripture says. Paul even quotes Psalm 8 from 1 Corinthians 15, and and there too says that God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And we know Hebrews 2, 8 acknowledges that we don't yet see all these things, but we know that his dominion will be fully realized and the extent of his kingdom fully manifested, he will have full conquest over his enemies, so that God may be all in all. Because there is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones from every tongue will one day come. Praise the Lord. Look back at verse 22. Again, Paul writes, God gave Christ his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the of him who fills all in all. This final important truth that Paul is praying we see is our vital union with the ascended king of glory. God gave him as head over all things to us. You and I here at Hayden Bible Church function as the hands and feet of Christ on this earth. Did he leave us when he ascended? Did, did he abandon his post when he was taken up? Some of us live our lives as if he did. Listen to John Calvin from the Institutes. He, he writes, he says, Being raised to heaven, he withdrew his bodily presence from our sight, not that he might cease to be with his followers, who are still pilgrims on the earth, but he might but that he might rule both heaven and earth more immediately by his power. His ascension, following his death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension is your confidence and conviction of life. It's your courage. Your head, Christ, your husband, in a sense, is on the throne. You and I, can we can rest in our hearts with confidence and conviction that all earthly rulers are answerable to him and will be judged by him in his office as king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, his hands and, as his hands and feet, you are empowered and expected to live your lives just as if that were true and proclaim it to everyone who stiffens their neck against his sovereign authority and plead that they instead repent and believe the gospel and be saved because the lamb, the, the lamb is on the throne. The one who saves is in charge now. The one who loved me, he has all authority. You know, I need to to hear a message like this today. Sometimes it seems like the darkness is spreading faster than the light. And that our struggle is against flesh and blood. And that my own sinfulness is mightier and wields a heavier and sharper sword, more powerful than the spirit enlivened word from his mouth. And that the rulers and powers and world forces of this darkness and and the spiritual forces of wickedness are actually the ones in charge. Sometimes it seems like that. But it turns out the one who loves you is seated on his throne. I can't stay in that place of muck. You and I need to encourage each other every day. We need to come together. We need to open our Bibles and look at truth and remind ourselves of reality. Because our imaginations and our emotions take us away to some place unfaithful and and, and reap havoc on our lives and make a turmoil out of our hearts. Reality is that your Savior is on a throne. All of this is about Jesus Christ. You and I, his... His body, the earthly manifestation of His glorious presence, and in a sense in a one flesh relationship with the King of glory, indwelt by His life, proclaiming His kingdom, we're overcomers to His glory. The higher the honor the Lord has in your heart, the greater the glory you ascribe to Him by the way your life lives out. When God is big, So to speak, in your heart, the trivial first world matters of life in North Idaho are rightly placed under his royal majesty. You have an assignment as you leave here today. Proclaim his kingdom. Unashamedly, you don't need to be ashamed that your savior is on the throne. Speak his name. Tell about his majesty, his glory, his rule, his dominion, his authority over every other so-called authority in your, in your uh, existence. Tell everyone Jesus Christ is on the throne. Bring new disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ under his authority. Live your lives with holiness, assurance, and conviction that he who loved you so tenderly that he bought you with his own blood. He's in charge of everything now. All glory and honor are ascribed to him him alone. Let's go do that today, okay? Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the glory of our great Savior, the one who not only... Died in our place and was buried for real and to everyone 's astonishment was raised from the dead is now ascended to a throne, and his kingdom is ever present, and it will never end. Thank you that we 've brought in been brought into a A a deep relationship with the one who loved us and the one who's completely in charge. And we pray, Lord, today that you would give us, based on the truth of your word, courage, perseverance to proclaim his great kingdom to this dying world. And we pray in Christ's name.